Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and this week we will be talking about one crazy case, which involves social media and the University of Wisconsin. Joining me will be both the plaintiff in this case, Madeline Krasno, and her lawyer, Caitlin Foley of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And they'll be telling us about the lengths the university has gone to to eliminate Maddie's comments from their social media pages and why that implicates the First Amendment. Before we get to that interview, I just want to mention that I hope you are also checking out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. Recent episodes include interviews with Christopher Soul Eubanks about his new advocacy organization, Apex Advocacy, which is taking an intersectional approach to opposing animal agriculture. Then there's an interview with Dr. Andrew Knight on the latest research on the safety and possible benefits of vegan diets for dogs. That's not too controversial, but a little bit. And yes, potentially cats. All right, you just have to listen to the interview. And Gloria Pancrazi and Michael Bronner joined me to talk about Gloria's new movie, Coextinction, which examines the intersecting fates of the orca, salmon, and other animals, plus the indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest, and also about the fight to save them. Fascinating, fascinating film. I'll also take a moment to ask for your support for the Animal Law Podcast and the Our Enhouse Podcast. If you are in a place where you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount, and we would be so grateful for that. Right now, let's get to the interview. Caitlin Foley is a staff attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund, where she focuses on a range of civil actions, including challenges to unlawful agency actions that impact wild and farmed animals, and suits that seek to hold private actors accountable for their neglect of captive animals used for entertainment. Caitlin graduated in 2010 from the University of Pennsylvania and in 2016 from the University of Chicago Law School. Madeline Krasno is a former primate lab worker turned activist. She has worked for numerous animal sanctuaries, a wildlife rehabilitation center, and advocacy groups. Maddie holds a master's degree in humane education through the Institute for Humane Education and Valparaiso University, and bachelor's degrees in zoology and child development from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Maddie was actually a student animal caretaker at UW-Madison's Harlow Primate Research Laboratory from 2011 to 2013, and is currently a plaintiff in two free speech lawsuits related to animal testing, one against the university, this the one we'll be discussing today, another against the National Institutes of Health. They will be joining me right after this. Registration is open for the Animal Law Conference, November 4th through 6th in Portland, Oregon. Co-hosted by the Animal Legal Defense Fund and the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark Law School, this year's conference marks the 30th anniversary of this premier animal law event. Returning to the veg-friendly oasis of Portland, Oregon, the conference features discussions with animal law experts across multiple disciplines. Join in person, live stream the event from the comfort of your home, or watch the sessions anytime on demand after the event. Special guest Miyoko Schinner, the founder and CEO of Miyoko's Creamery, will deliver an inspiring keynote address and CLE credits will be available to attorneys, including ethics credits. Registration is now open. Don't miss your chance to join the conversation and immerse yourself in the community. 
For more information, visit animallawconference.org. That's animallawconference.org. Register now for the North American Animal Law Conference. Showcasing animal law scholarship, this event is taking place September 16th in Toronto. Registration for the North American Animal Law Conference Scholars Track includes two days of the Canadian Animal Law Conference. More information can be found at thebrooksinstitute.org slash NAALC hyphen 2022. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Caitlin and Maddie. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. I'm excited to be talking about this case. It's kind of a crazy case. Well, they're all such crazy cases, but this is a crazy case. Unbelievable what, what kind of happened here. Uh, and and just because, uh, Maddie, you started doing something that almost everybody listening does. And I'd just like to start a, a little bit with some of those facts, because you have some personal experience here that led you to what, what ultimately became social media posting. But tell us a little briefly about about the universities. Um, this is the University of Wisconsin and its primate testing program, which some people may have heard of, but just to familiarize people a little bit with what we're talking about, because it is a very famous program, infamous, I should say. And actually you had personal experience with this program. So can you just give us a little bit of that background before we talk about the case? So I um, went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for my undergraduate education. From 2011 to 2013, I was a student animal caretaker in the Harlow Primate Research Laboratory. A lot of people are wondering how I ended up there. Um, And the reality is, is that I really loved animals and I was especially passionate about primates. I looked up to Jane Goodall and thought that if I wanted to work in primate conservation, I should get some experience and why not get it right away as soon as I could. So I applied to be a caregiver at um, one of the primate labs, not having any real background or knowledge of what goes into animal testing. Uh, I knew of sort of the infamous Harry Harlow, um, but I also knew that Harry Harlow was no longer alive. I didn't know much about what I was getting myself into. That is how I ended up there. And I was there for two years, a little over two years. Um, I worked about 10 to 12 hours per week, as well as the weekends. And during that experience, I witnessed a lot. I was a part of a lot. And it really kind of changed my perspective on what, what we are doing to animals in this world, especially in animal research. It really is fascinating that that you went into this basically naive, which I imagine both a lot of people do. It seems like everybody who goes into it then kind of is is incorporated into that mindset and, and you weren't. Instead, you were appropriately, I think, pretty horrified at, at what you saw. Now that we have that background and we know where you're coming from, let's talk a little bit about the laws, the events that led to the lawsuit. I know your papers have a lot to do with how Facebook and Instagram work. I understand why you have to explain that to the court, but let's let's assume that people know generally how Facebook and Instagram work. Though if there are specific details that come up, uh, feel free to clarify them. This involved commenting on posts, I think, and I think that's something that most people are familiar with doing. And can you can you talk a little bit uh, about the what these comments were that are involved in this lawsuit and the interactions that that 
that they involved and, and where they were posted. What kind of came about is that, and I, I should say that, you know, when I when I worked in the lab, I was very naive to what was going on. You know, I battled with this sort of desire to get out of there, but I also felt worried that if I left, there would be people who would care less about the animals and not take as good of care of them as I was. And I know that's like something that um, actually a lot of caretakers in labs struggle with. And so that being said, in order to survive that, I also had to emotionally shut down a little bit um, and desensitize myself. But I, I ended up coming out of it. And you know, in the last several years, I got more and more comfortable talking about my experience. Um, it actually has helped me to heal a little bit. What I started doing was I started posting about these experiences on social media, particularly Instagram and Facebook. And I would tag the university in my posts, as well as comment on some of their posts about my experience sharing things like I used to work in one of their labs and, you know, this is the reality type thing. And they immediately were untagging themselves from my posts as well as deleting or censoring my comments on, on their posts to the point that like a conversation could not ensue because my, my comments were gone. Yeah. And, you know, actually I started out preparing for this interview by looking at some of their papers. And I got this feeling that, that you had kind of devoted your life to a barrage of, of constant interaction. There's actually a fairly small number of, of posts that we're talking about here that, that started this whole lawsuit, isn't it? Yeah, it really wasn't wasn't a whole lot. But I think that people who have worked in labs and have the firsthand experience are a lot more powerful than than people think. These true experiences have the potential to really sort of discredit what this industry has put out there. So there were a number of different ways. I mean, you mentioned some of them, um, but a number of different ways that they've limited your ability to post, uh, whether it was comments or your own posts. Can we just go through them all so we have that sorted out in our heads? Like, what were they doing to limit your, your interactions? Yeah, so they were untagging themselves. That was kind of the first indication that they, I realized they noticed me because I would tag them in photos and that would show up on their tagged photos on Instagram. And then I would screenshot that to make sure they were there. And when I'd go back and check again, I'd realize that they were gone. And so I actually created posts calling them out for untagging themselves from my posts. And at the same time, I had started commenting on some of their own posts. I had comments that were actually deleted. There's also a censored word list that we discovered later on that plays into how they're able to censor conversation about animal testing. So I think that those are the pieces. Caitlin, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the universe of activity that was going on before Maddie's account was restricted by the university um, is relatively small. So after she tagged the university in her own Instagram profile posts, so that wouldn't have been the university's page. Um, but then she was automatically on their radar. And we know from documents we obtained during the course of this lawsuit that even her tagging the university in her own Instagram posts put her on their radar. 
there were people involved in their primate research talking about her um, before she even commented directly on their Instagram page. So when Maddie then issued her first comment directly on the university's Instagram page, criticizing their animal testing program in response to a post that the university had issued about testing on dairy cattle that they have as a part of their research subjects at the university, her comment was immediately deleted. And then a subsequent reply she made to another individual on that same post was deleted. So they were aware of Maddie even before she commented, and they were ready to take action, uh, it seems to us, the minute that she appeared directly on their own Instagram page. And then Maddie commented just one more time on a separate post on their Instagram page, and her account was then restricted. And her account being restricted, um, I know some people might be familiar with Instagram, it's a relatively rare action that the university at least does, in which any comment Maddie then made for four months in this case was automatically hidden from public view by any user. So it's a, a pretty harsh penalty to be imposed on someone who issues at most two posts, two comments on two posts that the university had issued on its Instagram page. I'm not sure if it's true of, of that particular action, but I know with some of these actions, which I thought was particularly interesting, and I, but I was curious to know like what you knew about it. It wasn't obvious necessarily to you that your posts weren't reaching other people. It's kind of a secret. Like when you look at, at their their page, either Facebook or Instagram, perhaps, it looks like your comment is there. Your friends on Facebook might see it, but then the rest of the world couldn't see it. Did you know that? Were you deceived by that? Were you looking out for that? Because I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that, I don't think. It seems particularly insidious. Yes, absolutely. And no, I did not know that initially. So it was actually, what would happen is, is sometimes when I started to to comment and think that someone would reply to me, but they weren't, I started to ask friends, like, are you seeing my comment? And that's how we started to discover that I was being censored. And that's also how we eventually discovered this censored word list, which is, again, another aspect of their censorship that doesn't just affect me. It impacts anyone who's trying to talk about animal testing issues. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that censored word list? Because this was a way they they put in to automatically censor you, right? Like if one of these words show up, your post just doesn't go up on their page. And can you talk a little bit about what kind of words were in there and what effect it had on your posts? <laughs> I'm talking about this. I have to say, it comes back to being so ridiculous. As I mentioned, when I was first thinking about this case, I thought we were talking about this huge panoply of, of, of posts. And it's actually not a lot. It's a small universe. But still, can we talk a little bit about these um, these censorship words that automatically, if you put the, one of these in your um, in your post, you're automatically deleted. What kind of words are in there? During the course of this litigation, we actually discovered the existence of the keyword filter list because obviously that's not something that's public knowledge. But there's two separate lists. The university maintains one for Instagram and one for Facebook. The Instagram one is particularly interesting because the date that we last know, there were 28 words in the list and 21 of them directly involved animals. So there were words such as primate, lab, testing, cruelty, words that are typically used by someone who might want to voice their objection to animal testing that the university conducts. And the same is also true on Facebook, where about half the words on their filter list involved animals or an anti-animal testing perspective. And that means that anyone making a comment, their comment was automatically hidden if it contained one of those words. And they wouldn't receive any notification that that was happening. So it's another instance of kind of a not immediately visible 
uh, suppression of someone's speech on their social media pages. Wasn't there one instance where there was an exchange of comments and the person who was arguing with you, their comments were appearing and then your comment, because it contained one of these words, got deleted. So it looked like you were just quiet. Yes, it was incredibly frustrating, especially because I had written out like this really well thought out reply to what they were saying. And and at that point, you know, sometimes I've I've learned now to copy something that I write and paste it somewhere else so that if it's hidden, I can try pasting it again and writing whichever word I think was hidden in some truly ridiculous manner by putting spaces or emojis in the middle of it to make it not trigger the censored word list. But yes, it ultimately looked like I was just accepting what that person said and walking away. Uh, Let's get to the lawsuit. And the lawsuit has a lot to do with the fact that the University of Wisconsin is a public uh, university. I mean, I think almost everybody listening has heard of the First Amendment right to free speech, but can you like talk a little bit about what that means in the context of a public as opposed to a private university? Yeah, the First Amendment um, really only applies to public actors. And so that is why we're able to bring this lawsuit because the university is a public entity. Speech within certain spaces that are either traditionally thought of as protected or that the university creates to host protected speech is protected by the First Amendment. And that means that the university can't suppress it without either meeting certain tests or in the case of certain types of restrictions, can't suppress it at all. We're doing a form analysis in this case where we're arguing that the university's creation of their Instagram and Facebook page created public forums within the comment threads of their posts. So the comment threads are those spaces underneath the posts that the university would have issued where people can come and interact with the university and each other. And they can comment on virtually any topic of discussion and reply to each other within the comment threads. And the public forum analysis that applies to this is we are arguing a designated public forum. And that's really just saying that even though social media sites are new and they're not one of these traditional historical public forums that some people might think of, like a public park or Hyde Park in London, where it's been reserved for time immemorial for people to come and express their views, by creating an account on this inherently interactive site, a social media site, and inviting people to comment without limits, has created a new public forum where people can engage in expressive conduct and there are certain restrictions on the government's ability to suppress or silence that speech. And I think that you've really just summed up why this case is so important. People don't go to the park to give speeches and, and listen to them anymore. That's not how people interact uh, and, and talk about the government. Before we get to that in more detail, I'd just like to go through the other cause of action just so people have it to lay it out uh, in the beginning which people might be less familiar with in the right to free speech, and that's the right to petition the government. Can you talk about that? Sure. The right to petition is often seen as a uh, corresponding right, a tangential right to the right to free speech, but it is different. And that's basically the right for someone to um, ask the government to address agreements they have. And in this instance, in context, it would be the right for Maddie, just like any other individual, to ask the university on their social media page to, in this case, stop animal testing. She has grievances against animal testing generally and from her personal experience working as a caretaker in their labs. And she would like the university to receive her petition. And the right to petition, it isn't really developed in case law, 
but it does exist and it's as protective of speech as the right to free expression. And we're arguing that she has a public right to submit her grievance to the university, just as anyone else who wants to lobby for reduced tuition rates to the university on one of their Instagram or Facebook posts or a similar grievance. Yeah, and one of the things that they point out is, well, she could have written us a letter, so her right to petition is protected. Why is it important that she be able to exercise her right to petition in this more public way? Yeah, I think it's because the university has created this means for people to do so and has allowed other people to petition them for grievances, like reduced tuition rates, um, like uh, controversies over their COVID testing protocols, and they've not silenced people for submitting those petitions. They've created a public way to submit a petition. And the public nature of a petition process, we think, is inherent in the right to petition. So Maddie wants to publicly tell other people about her grievance and while she submits it. And that right should be protected by the First Amendment. Yeah, it, it seems very obvious that if you have a right to petition, you should have the right to have other people know about it rather than, yeah, you can send them a letter that's generous. But <laughs> that would be allowed by the Constitution. It doesn't prohibit you from sending them a letter. Um, and the actual vehicle used to get into court is 42 USC 1983, which is very, very, it's a well-known statute. But can you just tell us briefly, if people aren't familiar with it, what it is and how it works and how it helped you get into court? Sure. So we're bringing this case in federal court. We're in the West District of Wisconsin. And the reason that we are there is because of the statute that allows us to sue, in his case, a state actor for violation of someone's constitutional rights, that being Maddie's rights. So it's kind of a like a legal hook to get into federal court for violation of someone's constitutional rights. Right now, just to sum up where the lawsuit is, you're at the summary judgment stage, correct? And, and by and large, the facts have been stipulated, too. Yeah, so we're at this, we're finished briefing on summary judgment. So we're awaiting a decision on that. Uh, and both sides move for summary judgment on all the claims. So we're awaiting um, the court's take on our, our briefing. But the facts that are stipulated are mostly revolving around how the social media sites operate, their interactive components, and the actual facts surrounding Maddie's restrictions are, um, I think, mostly undisputed, but not stipulated to by the parties. As you mentioned, one of the most important issues in this case is the question of whether this is a designated public forum, which is what you contend, or they contend it's a limited forum. Can you tell us the difference and just expand on why you think these social media pages are a designated forum, which is a really important concept in First Amendment law? As I said before, they're not uh, traditional public forums, and we're not arguing they are because those are the Forums that have existed for time immemorial, they're historically recognized as being these places where people can come and engage in protected speech. So we are arguing that these comment threads on the social media sites are designated public forums. And designated public forums are places that the government creates to host protected speech. And many of the same protections that speech in these traditional public forums enjoy are also enjoyed in designated public forums. And that's why we think it's really important that the court recognizes and agrees with us that the university has created them in this instance. And the court does that by applying a two-step analysis. So the court looks at the nature of the property and its compatibility with expressive activity. And then the court also looks to the policy and the practice of the government and whether or not they intended to create a public forum in the first instance. And that latter part is um, an objective inquiry. So they're not looking to the university to say, did you create a public forum? Did you intend to do this? In which case they would probably say no. They're looking at the actual policy and practice of how they operate and control speech within the forum. 
And just briefly on the first point about the nature of the property and its compatibility with expressive activity, nearly every court to consider this issue in the social media censorship context has agreed that when you create a social media account on an expressive site like Facebook and Instagram, you are engaging in a, a property that is compatible with expressive activity. So we're mostly arguing over the second point of the university's actions in monitoring um, and regulating speech within the forum. Of course, it's always hard looking at a case fresh. Well, it's hard looking at a case in any way, separating out the issues. And it's kind of inter- the question of what kind of forum is this kind of intertwined with the question of what kind of discrimination this is. So before we get into the details and how it applies to the facts, can you just lay out the difference between viewpoint discrimination and content discrimination under the First Amendment? Viewpoint discrimination is great because it applies in every forum. So uh, it's prohibited in every forum, whether or not you're a designated public forum, traditional, or what the university is arguing, a limited public forum. Briefly, the limited public forum is a forum where some protected speech is allowed, but the university has, from the outset, limited the speech allowed to particular speakers or subjects. And we don't believe that that has occurred here. So viewpoint discrimination is prohibited in any forum. Viewpoint discrimination, just briefly, is discrimination of speech based on a particular view or perspective that that speech conveys. So we're arguing that university's decision to restrict Maddie's account or delete her comments because of her anti-animal testing viewpoint is is viewpoint discrimination. And then content-based discrimination is generally prohibited in designated public forums and in traditional public forums. And to do that, the government needs to meet um, a test called strict scrutiny, do that permissibly under the Constitution. And conduct-based discrimination is when the government regulates speech based on the substance of the speech, of the message that the speech is conveying. So a lot of people describe this as regulation of a given subject matter, such as anti-animal testing. A designated forum, no viewpoint discrimination, and content discrimination is, is permissible, but only in very limited circumstances. Correct. When you meet strict scrutiny, which is a very high bar for the government to meet. And if it's a limited forum, as they contend, there's no viewpoint discrimination uh, allowed. But content discrimination is permissible if it's kind of in compliance with their rules. In limited public forum, the government can't engage in viewpoint discrimination. They can engage in some content-based discrimination. But their restrictions on speech must also be reasonable. And we would argue that even the university's actions don't meet that lower bar than strict scrutiny. So their primary argument that their actions were not discriminatory seems to be that these posts were, quote, off topic. They talk about off topic a lot. That's the hook they're hanging most of their arguments on. You point out, I'm going to take a quote from from you. In fact, its employee responsible for moderation monitors its Instagram accounts for, quote, animal rights and, quote, animal research comments that he believes are, quote, almost always off topic to the university's posts. Now, so they just automatically decide if it's about animal research, it's off topic. But there's two things. Some of these some of these posts were not even arguably off topic and other things that totally were off topic were allowed. Is that right? And can you kind of go through those factual situations? The, the first post you were talking about seemed to be in response to to experiments on on cows. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was speaking to their exploitation of other animals, which is something that at the university, there are a lot of different ways that they are using animals in testing. And so I, I had brought it up on a post where they were talking about dairy cows. And yes, they like to claim that when I mention 
these issues about what's going on in um, in their animal testing laboratories that it is off topic. But the reality is, is that, you know, as as a university, that part of what they do um, and what is so integral to what they do is research. I argue that that animal testing is always on topic, that that it's part of the university. And this is the university's social media. This is this is their pages where they talk about what they do. Even in cases where it's not off topic, where they're talking about, again, I would argue it's not off topic because I'm thinking of a particular post where they were talking about badger moms. And, and badger, badgers are, yeah, that's yes. the, we're not talking about actual badgers. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. Um, so University of Wisconsin-Madison's mascot, they're uh, badgers. And so they were, cel- it was like a Mother's Day post and they were celebrating badger moms and, you know, showing showing students who with their children. And I had commented saying something about how they are literally forcing pregnancies in these laboratories for these monkeys, often at an age when they're they're not ready to be having children and taking these babies away from them. How is that celebrating motherhood? This is something that they were not pleased to see and uh, would consider to be off topic. Yeah, and I want to make clear, too, as you're talking about it, uh, that that your posts, they were critical, but we're not talking about, like, long diatribes with, with obscene language or, or, you know, a lot of, uh, like, they were, they were pretty concise. I, I'm not sure that would make a difference, whether that would make them disallowed, but I just want people to have the factual situation straight. They were relatively short, to the point, and certainly not friendly, but, you know, not violent or in any way, uh, in any way inappropriate for any other reason other than you were expressing that point of view. Obviously, the term off topic is pretty loose term. Like, what what does that even mean? Like, it's pretty in the eye of the beholder. And but so one of the points here as well is that there were plenty of other posts, as anybody who has ever read a series of, of comments on anything on social media they go all over the place. And there were plenty of uh, post comments made here also that weren't about animal research, but that were just as arguably off topic as, as these. Is that correct? Yes. So the reason that they're arguing that this off topic policy, which they argue is actually not a policy, their removal of comments for being off topic uh, is permissible is because they want to fall into this limited public forum analysis where they don't have to meet strict scrutiny. But the problem is that what we've alleged, they really only apply this off-topic practice to remove anti-animal testing speech. They leave many, many comments that are are arguably off-topic to the eye of the beholder on their social media pages, and they only really monitor for anti-animal testing speech even before it's occurred, both through the keyword filters and through actively monitoring their page to quickly hide comments that come in. So they're applying the off-topic quote unquote policy in a discriminatory manner. And it's also not consistently applied to other speech that could be considered off topic, though we do contend that Maddie's speech was on topic. So wouldn't even apply to the quote unquote policy. Right. No, I understand it applies on both sides. Um, and yet, as you mentioned before, I can't imagine there weren't plenty of topics about COVID testing on, on these pages because, you know, I work at a university too, and that's pretty much all anybody's talked about for the past two years, regardless of what of what the university is, is talking about. They also claim that the posts dilute other messaging 
and they label them spam. Both of these contentions seem completely ridiculous on, on their face. Like, like I said, you weren't posting 5,000 comments a day on, on every, every post, but can you just address what they're trying to, the point they're trying to make with these claims? Yeah, I think they're trying to build up a compelling state interest, which is part of the analysis for strict scrutinies for them to survive, like a heightened analysis for whether or not their conduct violated Maddie's constitutional rights. And by arguing that their speech isn't reaching their audience, that their posts aren't being read by students who want to engage with the university, or that they can't find comments from students because Maddie's or some other animal activist speech is clogging up the comment threads as a common phrase they employ. The problem with that is that Facebook and Instagram are built to be places where people comment in large numbers and they reply to each other and they're really easy to find people's comments within the comment threads. They're built as platforms for people to interact with each other in large numbers. And that's why the university has chosen to create social media pages in the first place is to reach this large audience. So the idea that Maddie's comments or someone else's would dilute other people's messages in the comment threads or that those people wouldn't be able to see the university's posts, which are always visible on top of their page, um, doesn't really make sense. And certainly that doesn't constitute a compelling state interest in our, our view. They're certainly not spam. I mean, no matter how you define spam, this just wouldn't count as spam. Uh, they also, this may seem obvious, but they reserve the right to remove any content for any reason. Can you just explain why that, why that doesn't help them? Sure. That doesn't help them even if they were a limited public forum, which they argue they are, because there are no guidelines to guide their application of a policy that allows them to remove content for any reason. I mean, if we allowed them to do that, if that was a permissible thing they could do, they could just violate people's constitutional rights for um, any reason If they woke up one morning and didn't like people talking about bagels one morning. I um, mean, the problem with that is it just captures so much protected speech by the First Amendment. And because we know that there is no policy, the university has said that, we know that there aren't guidelines to help someone determine whether or not a comment should be removed existed pursuant to a policy that there's too much discretion in the removal of, of people's speech and comments within the common threads. And so that's unconstitutional in any form. Can you straighten something out for me? So where is this off to the limit on off topic? Isn't that a social media policy? They're limiting off topic uh, comments. You would think so, but. And, and other things which, you know, aren't really involved here, like, I don't know, obscenities or things like that. Yeah, you would think so, but the university is adamant that they actually don't have a policy that applies to their moderation of comments, um, which is an interesting view. They say that as a matter of practice, they try to their utmost to remove off-topic comments, but in practice, that actually means they just look for and ferret out anti-animal testing speech. But there is actually no policy posted on the social media pages themselves or that they have internally as a measure to guide people's discretion in moderating their social media pages. So when we talked about the keywords, you kind of addressed this, but but people may be curious, automatically eliminating comments with words like monkey or uh, various other words. Why would these not also suppress pro-animal research comments? Are there no pro-animal research comments or are these are these words that for some reason, which I don't totally get vis-a-vis -vis all of them, would only be used, but I mean, obviously vivisection is a word that would only be used by somebody who's opposed to animal research. But monkey, why would that not be used by somebody else? Yeah, it certainly could be used by someone else, but it would still be constitutionally problematic because you can't remove multiple viewpoints about a particular subject matter. 
um, under the Constitution. So even, even if they captured pro-animal testing speech, it would be problematic. But we do think that it actually mostly targets anti-animal testing speech because the creation of the keyword filters was directly in response to campaigns they were receiving from other organizations like PETA who were telling people to go to their Instagram or Facebook page and urge them to stop animal testing. And so they specifically chose phrases that those commenters who were urging an end to animal testing use in order to filter out uh, their comments and subsequent comments anyone could make on that particular view. So we think they are geared towards ferreting out anti-animal testing speech. And because we have seen the presence of pro-animal testing speech, like Maddie's example earlier about her exchange with another user, we think that the majority of people being silenced are anti-animal testing advocates. So they troll through like PETA's pages and find the words that, that PETA followers might be using and then ban those, those words from, from their comment sections. Is that what you're saying? It's pretty nefarious. I know it is. It's, it could be a book. Uh, they both monitor PETA's own Twitter accounts. We know that. For any campaigns, they might be urging other people to comment about animal testing, but they also will receive comments that people who read PETA's Twitter or Instagram or Facebook account might make that say a particular thing, um, like release Cornelius. Cornelius was a primate, is a primate kept at one of their laboratories, and PETA has done some publicity around his condition and care. And so people using that word might go to University of Wisconsin-Madison's Instagram or Facebook page, write a comment urging his release. And because they know that that's coming from an anti-animal testing perspective, because they monitor PETA, they would add that to the keyword list and all those comments would be hidden. And is that another situation where the person who was posting it would think that, that the world could see their comments, and but they actually couldn't? Yes, keyword filter list, uh, comments caught by the keyword filter list are hidden, but there's no notification to the individual and they can still see their comment. <laughs> so nefarious. I keep using the word nefarious, uh, but it, it seems to, to fit here. It also, I was going to wait to discuss this until the end, but I'm, I'm compelled to do it now. Like a lot of people say social media activism is, you know, it's a waste of time. You have to get out there. You have to do more than that. And I totally agree. People should do more. But this seems to indicate that they are, like, social media activism has, has its place very strongly in the world of animal activism. If they can be this upset about it and spend this many resources on just blocking people from saying what they think, it, it seems to, they're worried that it could have a big impact. Absolutely. That was exactly what came to me when they started untagging themselves from my posts in the beginning. I it's interesting to think about what would have happened had they not reacted in that way because their immediate sort of panic about me talking about what was going on in the lab kind of prompted me to realize the power of of me sharing my stories and i realized the power of other other individuals like me who have these experiences sharing these stories and that with this realization, I think it has the potential to really sort of lift the veil, sort of, so to speak, on the animal testing industry. I've had individuals now from labs nationwide that have actually reached out to me because of my posts confiding in me about their experiences. They may not be at the point yet where they're ready to publicly talk about it, but I find it really uplifting because... I think that the industry does a really good job of sort of 
encouraging people to just stay quiet, whether or not they leave the industry pleased or displeased. And I'm hoping to help, you know, also encourage others like me to feel supported and empowered to to speak their their truth if they want to. Because I just know that that working in in one of these labs, it it really changes you and it, it can change you in ways that you can't come back from. Um, but I know that having like support is is really important. And so I just think these pieces, they're they're all kind of connecting for me. And it all began with me just sort of feeling like it's time. It's time to share my story. And what prompted me to feel to feel like I could was from from speaking with someone else who had worked in the industry. So I think building these relationships is is important. And I think the industry fears that. Yeah, I, I think this lawsuit really indicates that they are going to that they have been going to this much trouble just to hide some comments on social media. And that people who may be reaching out as you did, looking for that support and not getting it, don't realize that their their comments aren't reaching an audience. And so of course they're not getting any likes on their comment or or support or or great emojis or whatever, whatever it is you get on social media that makes you feel better. And they think it's because no one cares and it's because their posts aren't reaching anybody. It's really horrible. All right, back to the lawsuit. There is a backup argument. You're arguing this is viewpoint discrimination. That certainly seems like a very strong argument, but you also do also argue that it's content discrimination, which assuming that this is a designated public forum, as you argue, is not outright disallowed, but as we mentioned before, requires strict scrutiny. And can you just just explain what that standard is? So strict scrutiny is extremely high bar. And it means that the government's regulation of speech must be necessary to serve a compelling state interest. And it also has to be narrowly tailored to address that interest. We're arguing that the university's suppression of Maddie's speech doesn't come close to crossing that. In part, as we discussed, the compelling state interests of minimizing the amount of comments that they receive in a post so that their post can be read or that they can find someone's comments so they can interact with another user doesn't really hold water in the context of an interactive social media page where scrolling takes a matter of seconds to find someone's comment. And the university's posts are always front and visible. They're never hidden by no matter how many comments are appended to with the post itself. Um, it also doesn't really make sense because there are posts with 200 plus on topic, quote unquote, comments that are never regulated for being dilutive of the university's message or restricted because the university can't find someone's question that that was issued to them. So we don't think any compelling state interest exists here. We also don't think now our tailoring is met here, restricting Maddie's account for four months because of two uh, posts that she commented on doesn't seem like a way to ensure that most of her protected speech isn't being silenced, even if there was an off-topic policy that was being applied here that was constitutional. Um, and we actually know that the university thinks it hid on-topic speech that Maddie made during her account restriction by silencing a comment she made about the treatment given to a dog for cancer at one of the university's research center, uh, one of the university's veterinary hospitals. It was automatically silenced by the university. They knew it was on topic and kept it hidden. So we know that the restriction that they placed on Maddie's comment was not narrowly tailored to address the concerns that they think they've identified. 
And you argue that they're both uh, in the classic language of First Amendment, both overbroad and underinclusive. Can you can you just explain the, what the possible impacts of, of these kind of restrictions? Yeah, they're overbroad because they capture um, so much more speech than is uh, appropriate. So if they were concerned with, again, the dilutive effect of many comments on their posts, if they were concerned with their posts not being visible, there are other means than employing keyword filters that automatically bar, even before a comment is made, speech by anyone containing that keyword. It's just over-inclusive. It, ca- it captures too many uh, instances of protected speech to obtain the outcome that the diversity purports they're trying to obtain. They're also under-inclusive because, as I mentioned before, even if the university was trying to make sure their posts were visible, even if they wanted to find people's speech uh, within the comment threads, there's still so much on-topic speech made within their comment threads, like 200 plus posts containing the words on Wisconsin, which is, I guess, their rallying cheer. Um, That would make it very hard, according to the university, to find speech they want to find. It doesn't capture or address the concerns that they purport the restrictions exist for. It also doesn't capture their keyword filters and their account restriction money. Does that capture any speech that's off-topic if it doesn't relate to animal testing? So we can find numerous examples uh, just by going on the university's website today, their social media pages, and looking at the comment threads of comments that don't seem to relate at all to the posts the university is issuing um, about tuition uh, rates, about teachers people don't like, about the weather that day, and they have nothing to do with the posts that the the university is issuing, yet they remain visible. And so that seems to detract from the university's assertion that it needs to take away all these anti-animal research uh, comments from their comment threads in order to achieve what they want to achieve. Yeah, it, it, I mean, if anybody's ever read a comment thread, like, they, they kind of know this is nonsensical. Like they're all over the place. I can imagine on a university they're even more on over the place, all over the place. And I, I just want to emphasize because I'm not sure I emphasized it before. When you're talking about these keywords, it's not like they have keywords on loads of different topics that are problematic. Their whole keyword program is focused on words that relate to animal research, right? Yes. So as we know, the latest, uh, they have their keyword filter list. It might change at any point in time. But to our knowledge, their keyword filter list on Instagram um, had 28 words and 21 of them related to anti-animal testing perspective, animals, experimenting, those sorts of words. On Facebook, about half of the words related directly to animals. And then some of the other words related to obscenities, and some mentions of uh, current or former presidents, but the focus is definitely on an anti-animal testing perspective. I know there are a bunch of issues also involving various defendants, but I didn't get the feeling that any of them involve the, the lawsuit as a whole. So I thought we would skip over that, just which one defendant, one defendant was in and one defendant was out. Am I, am I right about this? Is, am I leading out any, leaving out any global issues that we haven't covered? No. If there's anything else I should have asked you that I didn't, please please let me know. And I assume that the next step in this case is just waiting. When do you expect the the decision to come down? Yes, we're hoping it's in the rocket docket. The Western District of Wisconsin considers themselves pretty quick to turn decisions around. So we're hoping in the next few months to get a decision. And depending on that, we might set trial dates, um, which are currently adjourned. So waiting a decision and might set trial dates if needed after that. I'm hoping there won't be any trial dates, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure you're going to win it if there is one because this is just one. I, I I interview people about the craziest cases, like you would people wouldn't believe it. And I, like I said, I started looking at this case by reading their papers, and I just thought 
that this involved somebody who was posting like 42 comments every day on everything that the university posted, just trying to bury them, which, you know, is my point of view would have been fine, but it's hardly what we're talking about here. Best of luck with the case. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. I can't wait for people to hear this. Thank you so much. We love your podcasts and we're looking forward to hearing this one. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thank you so much to Caitlin and Maddie for taking the time to tell us about this case. And thank you to Vicki Beachler and Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for their help in producing the podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review either there or on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Thank you so much for tuning in.